Hey lady, it's Dr. Dom here. If you like this show and you want to make your own, let me tell you about the free platform Anchor. It's a creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. You can add songs from Spotify and create any type of content that you are looking for. Anchor will distribute it all for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. On this week's episode in Her Space. Everyone waits for that deathbed confession. Most people don't get it. So if you're going to continue engaging with parents who just really, especially narcissistic parents who got it wrong, you are going to have to have realistic expectations and radical acceptance. And above all else, don't personalize your parents' stuff. That was them. It may have shaped you, but it's not yours to carry. It's not your load. It's not your burden. Put it down. Today's episode is sure to provide you with motivation, inspiration, or even a fresh perspective. If you have any aha moments or if you feel comforted throughout the episode, lady, please leave us a review and tell us what we're doing right so we can stay on track. Also, we release episodes every Friday, so be sure to subscribe on iTunes and visit herspacepodcast.com and enter your email address to get updates about our live events and all of the new beginnings that we have for this year. Welcome to Her Space, a podcast dedicated to uplifting women like you. We're your hosts, Dr. Dominique Broussard, a college professor and psychologist, and Terry Lomax, a techie and motivational speaker. In a world where Black women are often misrepresented and misunderstood, please join us as we initiate authentic conversations on everything from fibroids to fake friends and create a safe space where Black women can just be. Hey lady, it's Terry here from the Herspace Podcast, and I have a question for you. Do you want to start your own podcast? Have you been thinking to yourself, you know what, I want to start a podcast, but you just haven't taken the leap? If that's you, I got you. I'm hosting a free podcasting masterclass where I'm going to teach you how to create your own podcast from start to finish. So visit terrylomax.com and click on the pink link in the middle of your screen and register for my free podcasting masterclass. I hope to see you there. Lady. I am super excited today, if you can't tell. So I'm going to try my best to get through this introduction without doing too much. All right, so let's go ahead and just dive right in. Today, we have a very special guest in her space that you need to hear from, whether you know it or not. Her credentials are impressive, and we could talk about her bio and contributions and her impact all day. So we'll try to just keep it short and sweet so we can jump into the juicy conversation. Dr. Romani Dervasala is a licensed clinical psychologist in private practice in Santa Monica and Sherman Oaks, California, and professor of psychology at California State University, Los Angeles, where she was named Outstanding Professor in 2012. She is also a visiting professor of psychology at the University of Johannesburg. She is the author of the Modern Relationship Survival Manual, Should I Stay or Should I Go?, Surviving a Relationship with a Narcissist. You Are What You Eat, Change Your Food Attitude, Change Your Life, and Don't You Know Who I Am? Staying Sane in an Era of Narcissism, Entitlement, and Incivility, as well as the author of numerous peer-reviewed journal articles, book chapters, and conference papers. 
In addition to being the co-host of Oxygen series, My Shopping Addiction, she's also been featured on series on Bravo, the Lifetime Movie Network, National Geographic, the History Channel, Discovery Science, and more. You may have recently seen her on Red Table Talk with Jada, Willow, and Gammy. And today we are so stoked to have her in her space. Welcome, Dr. Romani. Thank you, you guys. How are you doing? Fantastic. We are so excited for this conversation. We know that our community needs it, even if they don't know it yet. So we are just pumped. I love it. I'm so glad. I'm grateful we're going to have this conversation. I think a lot of people will benefit from it. All right. So our quote of the day, Dr. Romani, you may recognize this quote. The narcissist is like a bucket with a hole in the bottom. No matter how much you put in, you can never fill it up. That is one of your quotes, Dr. Romani. And as Terry and I were preparing for this episode to have you on with us, like that quote stood out to me so much because it made like just seeing that analogy made so much sense to me in terms of being able to understand what it's like to interact with a narcissist. That's it. I mean, and I think that if people could understand it that way, then they will understand that at some point it's just a waste of effort and energy. I think people think, oh, one day I'll give enough and then a bucket will be full and everything will be fine. It's just never going to happen. And what I really want to be able to do is give people permission to just say, stop, just stop. Now, Dr. Romani, narcissism for me is like a relatively new term mm. in my toolbox. But after I started doing some research, I le- I realized very quickly, oh, I was raised around a lot of narcissists. Yeah. So can we just begin by explaining in simple terms, like what is a narcissist, right? It's like a buzzword these days. Yeah, it's a buzzword, but it's an incredibly misunderstood buzzword. And I think that as there's more and more content out there, more and more people are understanding it, but I still think more people misunderstand it than not. So narcissism is not self-love. That's how a lot of people think of it. They think it's self-love, maybe even a little bit selfish. Not really. In fact, it's not self-love, it's self-loathing. I'll get to that in a minute. But it's characterized by a pattern. And that pattern is really a lack of empathy, entitlement, grandiosity, arrogance, always seeking out admiration, always seeking out validation, being really superficial, being really sensitive to feedback or criticism, but having no problem doing it to other people, not being able to regulate frustration or disappointment. So when those things happen to the person, they will tend to really react out with tremendous rage. And they can almost be so sensitive, they almost look paranoid. And in some cases, some forms of narcissism, when things don't go the way they want, they also tend to look like victims. And so all of this combined, and there's different kinds of narcissism and all that, that's sort of the core of it. But at the real core, narcissistic individuals are deeply insecure. That's why they're always lashing out at people. That's why they're always so angry. That's why they're always so superficial, because they focus on their outsides rather than on their insides. And But yet, because they focus on their outsides, they're very charming. They can be very charismatic. They can seem very confident. So people are naturally drawn to them. And if they don't understand it, it's like a spider. You're going to get sucked into the web. You're not going to be able to get out. But this idea that a narcissist is just someone who's in love with themselves and likes to look in the mirror, not only do they not love themselves, yeah, they love to look in the mirror, but when they look in the mirror, it's all about insecurity and how can I look better and how can I look better? Because if I look good, then I am good kind of thing. That's really Mm. what it is. Mm. Now, when I hear that, I can see where so many people would get that confused because 
I could see where so many of us could say, oh, well, I recognize a couple of those traits in myself. Yeah, I think that, you know, listen, we all have our days, right? We have that moment (laughs) when we might lash out at someone. We have that moment when we might snap at someone because we can't get the answer we want from a clerk or something like that. The key is how self-reflective we are, how quickly we're self-reflective, how we try to repair the damage and how much responsibility we take. So let's say I was out somewhere, I don't know, and it seems like the olden days, but like I was out getting a cup of coffee, right? And and they serve someone ahead of me in line. I'm like, excuse me, excuse me, I was ahead of her. You know, and I do that whole thing, which is deeply entitled. It's not a good look. And it could very well be I was doing that because I've had a bad day. But then when I catch myself and say, I am so sorry, I had no right to behave like that. I apologize. I'm having a bad day, but that is not your problem. And I apologize for being short with you. That that clerk may still be mad at you. That's not the point here. It's that you took responsibility. But when you keep making those messes and are never self-aware and in fact feel like, well, I had the right to do that because it's me and why should I have to wait in line and everything has to be fair to me. That's the thing with narcissists. They want everything to be fair, but for themselves, they're not so concerned when things aren't fair or just for other people. It's all about them. So I think that it is the, it's how pervasive it is, how, how much it cuts across other situations. So sure, we do have moments when each of us are less than graceful. And people will say, well, does that mean a person who posts a lot of selfies on social media is a narcissist? Not necessarily, though we do know that narcissism and selfie posting are correlated, but that doesn't mean one causes the other. If that selfie posting person is a sweet person, is a kind person who checks in and apologizes and take responsibility. I, maybe at the worst of it, I'd say maybe a little immature, maybe a little insecure, but they're aware of who they are. And they might even say, listen, I think it's fun and I'm just having fun. I mean, is that any different than me playing a game on my phone? That's giving them joy and they're still being kind to other people. That's not a narcissist. That's a really good point. And when you think about, I know we're going to transition slightly into narcissistic parents, right? When yeah. you think about the signs of a narcissistic parent and how someone can tell if they've been impacted by a narcissistic parent, what does that look like? So I always tell people that sadly, having a narcissistic parent is a legacy that you carry heavily on your back and on your psyche throughout your adult life. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. Narcissistic parents harm kids through a number of ways. I mean, number one, these are very egocentric pattern parents who put their needs ahead of the needs of their kids. And as a parent, I can tell you, that's not how the math works. Are there days I put my needs ahead? Sure. I had to go to work. <laughs> I might've chosen to go to a concert. I mean, not a concert, a conference. I wish I would have gone to a concert, but I chose <laughs> to go to a conference. You know, I might've had a work dinner that went late. I might've missed something at their school because I did have to work. And sure, maybe a couple of times I might've chosen a friend's birthday and that might've meant I didn't watch a show they wanted that night. We've all done that. But more often than not, 80, 90% of the time, you really do. You put your needs secondary to your kids or you, you figure it out, right? Well, the narcissistic parent is the reverse. It's always their needs first, what they want, what they like, they hold court and their kids often feel like they have to earn their parents' love. And that, that, so a narcissistic parent is often one that may either view their kid as an extension of themselves. Meaning if that kid is doing just what they want, playing basketball, or doing ballet, or dance, or singing, or doing really well in school, and the parent can brag about that kid, that kid can often become a bit of a golden child to that narcissistic parent. 
And the narcissistic parent will sort of almost be a parasite sucking off of their kids' achievements and really putting all of their effort in. But that same golden child, let's say they have an emotional need, or maybe they're starting to burn out on basketball or ballet or something like that. The parent will be nowhere to be found when there's a real need, an emotional need, a deep need. And that child starts to learn. They're a bit of a one-trick pony. Mom or dad, whoever the narcissist is, is really only around when they're bringing home the trophies, when it's sports season, when they're slam dunking, when it's a whole you know recital. Then they're there in the front row. But at other times, those parents are nowhere to be found. Another thing that narcissistic parents do, and I call that particular pattern, by the way, overindulgence and underindulgence. They may spoil the child. They may you know, over like polish the trophies and everyone, Hey, here's my champ kid, but they underindulge their, their emotional worlds. Mm. The other way, you know, you have a narcissistic parent is that they really turn you into someone who becomes a source of what we call narcissistic supply, which is the validation. Remember that bucket we talked about? You can never Mm -hmm. fill narcissistic Mm -hmm. parents the same way. So the poor child, because remember a child doesn't understand from narcissism. Most adults don't understand narcissism. A child is not going to take step back and say, ah, yes, my parent is a narcissist and will never be satisfied. So let me go and tend to my needs. No, the poor child (laughs) is going to do everything they possibly can to win their parent over, to get their parents regard, to get their parents notice, if for no other reason that that's a survival strategy for a child. So some kids try to do that by being the very best kid they can do. They will try to keep their room clean. They will try to, you know, d- tell the parent what they want. They'll do. They'll even do things that adults should really be doing, like you really chores that are above sort of the pale for what a child should be doing. Tell the parents they're nice and pretty and smart and wow, mommy, I'm so proud of you all the time, just to keep that parent where they want or the child will act out to get that narcissistic parent's attention. You'll see that Mm -hmm. they'll be very impulsive. They'll get into trouble in school. They'll get into trouble with friends. They'll start to rebel as a teenager. But in many ways, that's like, please notice me. Please see me. Please pay attention to me. And for the kid who may not be up to cleaning the house or doing well at basketball or being a parent's handmaid, which is in essence what happens to these kids, and they go the other way, either way, the poor kid is just trying to win their parents over. Now, Fast forward into adulthood and you meet other people. Your most primary relationships will organize how can I win this person over? How can I give them enough narcissistic supply? What do I need to get do need to do to get their validation? Now you're an adult and that's what you do in your adult relationships too. So people who have narcissistic parents, they go on in adulthood. They either are very anxious adults, always wondering, am I wrong? Full of self-doubt, maybe I'm not doing this right. What if I disappointed this person? What if I'm not enough? Or They have problems with regulation because narcissistic parents are never around long enough and don't know how to do this themselves to teach their kids how to sit with uncomfortable feelings like disappointment, right? Mm. So, you know, how how does a child learn to be disappointed? I can say this as a parent, as hard as it is to do, we sit with that child and we let them cry it out. It's not, we can't fix everything, but the narcissistic parent, you know what? I'm calling your coach. I'm calling your teacher. Or... They're nowhere to be found when the child's going through disappointment. The child doesn't learn to regulate his or her emotions. They go into adulthood when they have strong emotions. They don't know what to do. So what are things they might do? Use drugs or alcohol, eat, spend, gamble, have sex, act out. They never learn to regulate those emotions. That's one of the primary jobs of a parent. And I hate to say it, path number three, they become narcissistic themselves. Having a narcissistic parent puts a person at risk 
for becoming a narcissist as an adult. Now, which of those three pathways you take has a lot to do with lots of other factors like temperament and other risk factors that are floating around that child. Oh my goodness. Wow. Mm. That was just, that was a lot to take in. Mm -hmm. And I could see, yeah, I can totally imagine that there are several listeners out there where they're feeling like their mind is blown because they are making the connection to how they were raised and who they are now. And one of the things that, you know, watching your videos that you talked about is this idea of trauma bonding. Mm -hmm. And so I was wondering if you could explain what trauma bonding is and how that works with the narcissistic parent and, and their child. So with trauma bonding, what ends up happening is, is in the most simple way to put it is that for the trauma bonded person, abuse equals love. And so, and there's um, what the next step to that is that in order to stay in that trauma bonded relationship, in that, in that really unhealthy relationship, I should say, the person makes up a lot of justifications. They didn't mean it. They were upset. And so you fight to keep that bond with that person. And it relates a bit to codependency too, right? Because what is a codependent person? But there's somebody who's constantly trying to cater to the other person, fix the other person, please the other person, because you get your self-esteem really from how the other person's doing rather than from yourself. So what happens with that trauma bond is that you actually it's like the it's almost like the more abusive the relationship the stickier it is and in so doing the person doesn't learn to become independent and autonomous they don't learn to voice their own needs they don't learn to be their own person because if they did it's almost like then what because these it's it's as though when you're in these these traumatic spaces there is no safety once again fast forward to adulthood abuse equals love what kind of relationship is a person going to stay in? In fact, people who are prone to trauma bonding find themselves in this really tragic space that when they are in healthy relationships, they'll say, this kind of feels boring. This feels uninteresting. It's as though without the abuse, it's not love. It's a really tough mm. cycle to break. And they'll say, eh, I don't even know if this is, does this person love me? And I'm like, okay, they show up, they pay attention, they're present, they're compassionate. And yeah, it sounds like love to me. And they'll say, right. but there's no drama. There's no excitement. There's no chaos. There's no somebody walking out on you. There's no abandonment. All mm. the stuff that is their trauma. And so that's the trauma bond. Goodness, I feel like my whole life is being talked about right now, Dr. Romney. I'm like, oh, oh my goodness, this resonates so deeply. Mm -hmm. But luckily, I have a great, great therapist and I've been doing the work. But I will say, you talked a bit about how those that have been raised by narcissistic parents may have some of those traits because yeah. of their upbringing. And then some of us, we just have an off day and things like that. How do we address the narcissism within ourselves. Like maybe someone's hearing this and they're like, oh my gosh, that's me. What do we do? So here's the number one. I get this email every day, 10 times a day. Doc, I'm watching your videos. I think I'm the narcissist. First of all, when I hear that, that to me is a good sign. If a person's willing to be self-reflective enough to say, ick, I'm seeing some of these patterns in myself. I'll say step one, fantastic. You've just gone over half the journey with that because most pathologically narcissistic individuals will never cop to being narcissistic. They'll tell other people they're narcissistic. They'll say other people are jealous. They'll say, you know, other people are haters. So they'll completely foist it on the world and say, there's absolutely nothing wrong with me. People just envy me. The person who's like, mm, I'm seeing that some of my patterns hurt other people. 
50% of the journey right there. The next 50% is really, really hard because for people who say, you know, this is who I am. I am really that person who yells at the coffee shop person. I do have trouble with empathy. I do tend to be egocentric. I do tend not to listen to my partner, but honestly, some of them will say, I came from a family where if you couldn't get your word in edgewise, you didn't take the luxury of time of listening to other people because you had to get yourself in there. It was almost like a family where there's not enough food, right? You had to snatch that food off the table or in a chaotic family where nobody's listening. People are like, we didn't listen. We just yelled because we had to get our words in or we were never going to get our chance. And so you can see if you come from that system, you jump into adulthood, how that could translate into not being present or not even looking empathic in a relationship. But if you can identify it, then the next step is to committing to the work of every day, every hour, mindfulness in your relationships. And that means doing the hard work of catching yourself, stopping, and genuinely listening to the other person and turning down your insecurity. Oh my God, they're talking about me. They're criticizing me. You know, no be present with their words. Stop thinking about how it's all about you because that's the problem with most of us. We listen to other people's words solely through the gateway of how this is about us. Maybe it's not about you. And for narcissistic individuals, there does tend to be that, well, this is about me. And so be present, listen to the other person, reflect back to the other person, be self-reflective on how your words will impact that person and only then should you speak. And what I just told you, that sequence, that is as hard as training for a marathon for somebody who's not used Mm. to doing that. Yeah, I could imagine as I was sitting there listening to you, yes, this act of mindfulness. And I know that mindfulness tends to be like, it's one of the latest buzzwords as well. Mm -hmm. And so how would you encourage someone to start practicing this mindfulness? Because I know you said like every, like, being being present and aware every moment of every day but how does one who's never done that mm-hmm. start that start small you know and so i start with very simple re- uh, simple exercises a very simple one would be reacting versus responding reacting is when you speak without thinking when you're like i never said that that's a reaction when you stop and hear what they say and say okay let me take this in I, I'll be honest with you. I don't recall saying that. However, if I had said something like that, that must've been really hurtful. And I'm so sorry. And let me think on it. Cause clearly my communication, I'm taking responsibility for my communication that night. It was off. I think there was also a lot of emotion. So can we sit down and talk about that? Do you see the difference between those two? Mm-hmm. One yes. was very stopping, thinking, taking responsibility, still saying like, mm. I'm going to be honest, I don't recall, but there's a lot of emotion that day. So can we talk about it? The uh, the responding allows room for a conversation to take place. The reacting often gaslights the other person. It often shuts the conversation down. So that's an easy exercise, which is literally way to beat. When someone says something to you, stop, listen, take it in, compose a response, and make sure that next sentence out of your mouth starts with I and not you. That way, you're more likely to be taking responsibility rather than accusing the other person, which tends to be the narcissist game, right? You did this. You said that. You're this. You're that versus I feel. Now, unless they say, I never said that, in which case that's no good. But you, you want to pay attention to, I want to be respectful of the other person's reality, even if mine might have been different. And to acknowledge they had, their, they had an experience of the event. 
you had an experience of the event. The two may not agree, but both of you clearly perceived it differently. That's very different than I never said that. That's a really, really good point, Dr. Ramani. And when I think about just the conversation that we're having now, I think about the research I've done and I I notice that sometimes feelings of shame come up for me when I have honest conversations with myself about what happened in my childhood. Mm. And so my question for you is how do you balance having respect and admiration for the adults that reared us while also acknowledging that they had some flaws that impacted us deeply? I think that's a brilliant conversation. It's interesting. I have a video that'll be coming out about this in the next few weeks is that every, you know, no parent, and I say this as a parent, no parent gets it right. We are flawed. We make mistakes. I could go, I could do a whole episode with you on every mothering mistake I've made, you know, and the gift I can give to my children is to acknowledge them. Not say, well, I did my best. They don't need to hear that and say, here's where I know I went wrong. And I recognize where I was flawed. And I'm really deeply, heartily sorry for how this could have hurt you. But I recognize it didn't. It shaped them. They'll go on to the next generation. They'll make their own mistakes. But I think the, 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 the issue of generations past, because emotional speaking in emotional terms is really only something we've been doing well for maybe the last 25 to 30 years even made it important. And I think generationally we see patterns. So this is a real balancing act. I've got to tell you, and there's no one size fits all. To the two of you, I say this, there's people out there listening who were deeply, deeply hurt by their parents. And I don't think they ever need to feel that they owe anyone an apology, least of all your parents. Your parents had a job to raise you it's on them to take, they're always going to be the grownups. And I don't even care if you're 50, 60 years old, the parents are still the grownups. You know, mm-hmm. there is a responsibility taking on their side. So for some people who say, I can't forgive this. I say to them, that's okay. That's okay. You don't need anyone's permission for that. Some people are on the fence and they say, I understand what they came from. This really hurt. You can still find that sweet spot, but that sweet spot can't be naive. It can't be, well, we're just going to pretend that never happened or one day they're going to get it or it's all okay. Or my needs aren't that important. That's not healthy. You can say Mm. these incredibly limited human beings who didn't get it, got it really wrong where I was concerned. I can set boundaries. Self-preservation is a right for me. I can enter this relationship on terms that are comfortable for me. And these people may never, ever have that moment when they see the light you don't wait for that. Everyone waits for that deathbed confession. Most people don't get it. So if you're going to continue engaging with parents who just really, especially narcissistic parents who got it wrong, you are going to have to have realistic expectations and radical acceptance. And above all else, don't personalize your parents' stuff. That was them. It may have shaped you, but it's not yours to carry. It's not your load. It's not your burden. Put it down. Wow. Mike drop. That was so deep. Your needs are validated and valued and everyone waits for the deathbed confession and many people don't get it. Mm -hmm. Someone really needed to hear that. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And this piece of radical acceptance, what does that look like in real life? (laughs) It is complicated. (laughs) It's funny. I've talked to more than a few people about this in the last few days. It's to me, radical acceptance is not a moment when it happens and then you see the light and the angels sing. It's not that at all. It is for everyone, I think, that these narcissistic relationships with parents, with anyone, some people don't even come into the realization of how narcissistic their parents were until their 40s or even 50s. Like this is not something they're like 18 years old. Oh, now I got it. 
so, but I'm amazed. I get, I see clients in their early twenties and they get it. And I actually envy them because at a relatively young age, they're setting themselves free and sometimes maybe freeing themselves from that bad marriage you enter because you didn't recognize you're just replicating the patterns that you got from your narcissistic parents. So I really credit those young people brave enough to come into therapy and do it. I also want to cite before I answer that though, I want to cycle back to a point you made, which is a very important one around shame. And I really want to talk about that because I think it's an important one for people to hear. Many people who come from narcissistic family systems, which may have faked to the world, like they put out the Christmas cards and their Sunday best and all of it. And the world would say, wow, you all have it all together, don't you? But Mm. only you knew the truth, right? You knew what was happening. And there's so much shame about that disconnect. Like this is an incredibly dysfunctional family. We are lying to the world and you lose your authenticity when you keep carrying your family's lies, right? That loss of authenticity and the shame with that is what leads to a lot of dysfunctional adult behavior. That's where we do all the stuff that continues to make us feel shamed as adults. So to have that moment of honesty, you're like, no, this family is a hot mess and cruel and abusive and invalidating. That's a tough moment because other people don't want to hear it. Like you really are probably not going to get in buy-in from all your brothers and sisters and aunties and uncles and all that. They're going to say, don't talk smack about the family, you know, Mm -hmm. and to be that one voice that says, this is sick, you're often going to be the one who's ostracized. So many people who come to that awareness of the narcissistic family system, there's a tremendous amount of shame that goes with that. And with that shame goes a lot of grief because they say, I just, this whole vision I had that I'm from a happy family doesn't exist. You know, this is all a lie. I lived a lie and it is a very, very painful moment in adulthood when people have to almost reconstruct this entire image in their head of what their life was and own the honest story. I got to tell you to look at a 40 year old client who then says, oh my gosh, I've been selling the world this whole story about what a great guy my dad is and how cool my mom was. And they were actually kind of monsters. And that's a tough awakening. And then a lot of people say, oh, I feel bad saying this. They're old now. I'm like That's where therapy becomes important. It's a private space. I don't want to leave, lose that point. Now, let me go back to your the next question. So radical acceptance is that moment where you're saying, this is who this person is. Limitations, they don't, they don't see me. They're not going to validate me. Because think about what a kid does. They jump through hoops and jump through hoops and jump through hoops in hopes that somebody will notice them, will see them. But all a child really wants is to be loved unconditionally. And every child has the right to that. Most children don't get it. So when the child learns that unconditional love isn't coming, they're like, all right, I'm going to try this whole conditional thing and I'm going to earn their love somehow, right? And so they keep trying to earn it and earn it. I'm going to be pretty. I'm going to be tall. I'm going to be good at this. I'm going to be good at that. I'm going to tell them everything they want. I'm going to agree with them. I'm going to marry the wrong person. I'm going to live the wrong life. I'm going to do what they want because someday this hoop jumping is going to be them seeing me. Your parents are never going to see if they're not seeing you, they're not seeing you. That's on them. That's just who they are, especially if they're very narcissistic parents. Now, the issue becomes that day when you say, ah, they're never going to see me. They're never going to get me. I came up short in the parent lottery. Like that's just, that's what, that's the story here. And I have to accept this person's limitations and you have to own it. And when that day comes, you are able to set the boundaries. You are able to have the expectations. Now, does that mean 
radical acceptance lifts the burden and you're never hurt? Oh, heck no. You're going to be hurt a thousand times over because you're going to keep grieving not ever got, having gotten that, that unconditional love. You're going to grieve not having that kind of successful relationship with a parent that would have helped you grow, which would have helped you feel safe in the world. You're grieving all the losses that came off of that. And with radical acceptance, I often say it's something that recalibrates. You'll have these moments, months, sometimes years of like, I got it. I've set the boundaries. But then you know what? Life happens. A parent may become sick. There may be a family wedding. Something might happen in life and you get pulled into the vortex again. And then you have to almost recalibrate your whole radical acceptance thing. But it's like, I see this for what it is. And this is a mess and it was hurtful and it was invalidating and it wasn't acceptable. And above all else, it was not my fault. I am not responsible for my parents' behavior, even though it hurt me and even though it shaped the trajectory of my life. So yeah, it's personal, but it's not personal because it was about you. It was about them. It just ended up shaping your life. That is so powerful. And Dr. Romani, when do, I know we talked about shame a bit. When is it time to cut the parent off Mm. and how do you replace that parental energy in your life? You know, if you, if you're seeking that mother or father figure after you cut them off? That's an amazing question. And I'll tell you, it's, there's, again, it's no one size fits all. For a lot of people, for reasons of culture, society, you know, only childness, whatever it is, some people can't get there. They'll say, let me tell you a beautiful story, because I think this story captures it in a very interesting way. It was a woman I interviewed for Don't You Know Who I Am, my most recent book. And this was a woman who was one of, I think, four or five kids. And the father was just a complete ragingly narcissistic jerk. The mom had divorced him years ago. As you know, the, people like him burn a lot of bridges. And to, as he was getting older, he really lived in a, not, a very limited, not very nice one-bedroom apartment, really didn't have any friends, didn't have a life. He'd already retired. Of these four or five kids, the, the person I interviewed was the one person every two weeks. She would drive, I think he lived one or two hours away from her. She'd drive that distance with groceries and some prepared food. He couldn't afford anyone to clean. She would drive to his house. She'd put away some, prepare a little food, put the food away, check the cleanliness of the space, run a load of laundry, set a timer, sit with him, eat, watch a TV show and get up. And she said, I can't stand the man. I don't actually, don't even care about the day he dies. I don't care. And I said, why do you go? And she said, I do this for me. I'm a good woman. This is who, what I would, this is a pathetic, old man who lives by himself, who is so toxic and poisonous. No one wants to be near him. And he broke me. She, she said, I will never marry. I don't have what it takes to have a relationship, you know, a long-term relationship. That's my entire life broke me of all of that. However, I refuse to let him take away one of the most beautiful things about me, which is my compassion. And I know this pathetic old man lives here. So I bring the food and she said, you know why I do it? I don't do it for him. I do it for me because when he drops dead, I'll be the only one to show up at that funeral. I honestly don't care, but I will let him go with peace. She did it for her. Now that might, I don't think it's self-serving at all. I actually thought it was a very interesting approach to this because she said, I want to be able to release him when he passes. I don't need to carry this weight one day longer than I, than I will. And I already have. And it was an interesting approach because she said, I don't care what he has to say. I don't care anything. She's like, every word coming out of his mouth has no meaning to me. I just do this. And she's like, and there was almost something Zen about it. You know, like she, she found this rhythm with it. Now that said, I also work with many people who have gone absolutely no contact. They say, 
there was too much water under the bridge, too much, too many hurts. In some cases, this is severe stuff. For example, a parent who may have shielded someone who was sexually abusing them as a child. Some things cannot be forgiven. And some people yet do forgive that, but they say, I can't. And to which I say, anybody who feels the need to go no contact, you don't need anyone else's permission, but your own. And I think the struggle is that people go to the world at large. I want permission. You ain't going to get it because this stuff really threatens people. This idea that you can go no contact with your family, it, it, it can be courageous. It can be destabilizing, but most people, it threatens their whole happy family fantasy. So I tell people, don't roll this one out as a public thing. This is something you do in your therapy, you do in your safe spaces, because I can guarantee you, you're not going to get a lot of buy-in. And so I think that that is a very personal decision. I mean, because I've seen cases that are absolutely horrific where people still have contact with the parents. And I've seen cases that almost seem a little mild and they have cut off the parent and no judgment on either side. I think that it's really that what feels right for you and allows you to grow into your authentic self. Some people sort of keep showing up for one parent is healthy and one parent is deeply narcissistic. The healthy parent may still be somewhat codependent with the narcissistic parent, but they love the healthy parent. So they may participate still in that parental unit for the sake of the healthy parent. It's almost like they'll view it as a deal with the devil. you know. And so, and I always tell people as you make do this decision-making, Please be with a, in, please work with a therapist who understands these issues because I think if you were with a therapist who's sort of obsessed with forgiveness and family harmony, could do a lot of harm to you. So you need to have a therapist who gets it and who who does who, especially someone who understands narcissism, somebody who might understand trauma, and get in there and do the work and then make that decision that's for you because you you have to figure out what journey you need to take with your parents to be able to release these demons. Oh, that, you know, the story you shared, I'm, I'm sitting with that and I am just blown away by, like you described, like her, that Zenness that, that it took. And my assumption is is that also she has been doing the work on herself, has been in therapy to get to that space to say, this is the decision that I'm making and I'm truly making it for my own peace. Yes. Yes. And I, but, but look at the part of her story. She said, I can't, I, I had to recognize that things happened. That this, this familial relationship, this father relationship was so toxic that it undercut her own capacity for things like closeness, intimacy, she had a lot of contempt for men. And so she, she's like, listen, I lost part of my journey. I did not get married. I did not have children. She had a very successful career. I mean, she had found other, but think of what she lost. You know, I mean, they, these were, and she said like, listen, I did the work. And I also realized that I got myself to a point and I've created a life where I feel safe. And for her, safety was everything and didn't even want to run the risk of the invalidation. Uh, you know, again, no journey is to be judged in that way. You know, so she, she really, she, she carried the hurt, but for her, as part of the cleansing, as part of the authenticity piece, which is so key here. Because to me, narcissism is the opposite of authenticity, to be frank with you. So when you're around it, it's hard to be authentic. And so as a result, it's as you do the work, it's being able to push yourself through and say, I can still be me in the face of this. They won't, and it's hard when you've grown and worked so hard to be your best self and have that best self invalidated or mocked or belittled, or trivialized feels terrible. 
It feels absolutely terrible. It's like putting out the sanctity of yourself to have someone desecrate it. And to which I say, no one can desecrate you. You, 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 you can always hold. And I, I actually have been calling it this. I call it soul distancing. And everyone talks about social distancing. Well, a bunch of people are having to quarantine with people they can't stand. And I say, ah, you may not be able to distance, soul distance. Take that sacred part of you, your soul, and hold it in. And do not let those toxic people near it. You can do that. Even if you're six feet away from them, you can hold it back. Oh, goodness. This is so good. And I know we are going to move into our next segment very soon, but two last questions. Mm -hmm. Dr. Romney, how do you deal with the narcissists that you cannot avoid? The ones that you're like, oh, I can't get this person off or I work with them, but you know that they're narcissistic. How do you deal with those folks? Uh, Using a technique I call bookending. And bookending works like this. You know you're going to see them. So let's use your work example. Now, these days, for some people, it's changed because we're working remotely, but you still, a narcissist can still be narcissistic on Zoom is something I've learned, by the way. So, but let's say it's olden days, right? Or it's the future. And you're going to be with this person in person and you know they're going to be at that meeting at 10 o'clock. One of the biggest mistakes people make is they walk right in. So I always say to people, I say, I want you to do what I call some narcissistic yoga. Many people don't know this. Yoga is not exercise, actually. Yoga is preparation of the body to engage in worship. So the ancient practice of yoga and Hinduism is really something to prepare the person to engage in puja, which is worship, to receive sacred energy, right? So if we view it that way, this yoga would be, how do you prepare your mind and your soul to go into a toxic space. And I, I've said to people, if you have a private office, that would be great. Go to a restroom stall if you don't have that and take some deep breaths, have an internal mantra you can say, really let that breath out and say, okay, I'm going in. I am not going to personalize this. I am more than enough that I can pull the nuggets out of there I need to hear. I do not need to engage with this person. And you say all of that and you're now you're in the zone and you go into the meeting and you're prepared. Now the narcissist, blah, 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 does all their damage, whether it's for an hour, whether it's for eight hours. Now you've come to the end of the day. And the other mistake people make is that they just go right, the commute or whatever. Now you need a detox. You got to get rid of their toxins. I say you need some kind of ritual on the back end. That could be anything from lighting a candle to having a tea. It's not magic. It's not like, ooh, the magic tea. It's, it's a ritual to say, I am releasing this. I am releasing this toxic energy and I'm going to drink this tea to have my candle. I'm letting this go. It could be meditation. It could be mindfulness. It could be, I can let this go. I'm done. I've done my part. But when it's intentional and it's bookended, you've prepared yourself. You don't take the bait. You don't over-engage, you get the job done, but on the back end of the day, you're kind to yourself. Might even be a bath when you get home, you might go to bed early or whatever it looks like, boom. You've actually been intentional rather than running into the meeting, not being prepared, over-engaging, getting beaten up, being really angry at the end of the day, jumping on the freeway, cursing angry, going home and yelling at other people. That's not how this could go. Bookend it and you can actually help yourself feel like you're more in control of the situation. I love that. Set Ooh. the intention. Yes. Set the intention, yeah. So, that, yes, I love that. That really was so amazing. And, and so I like that that was a tip for how to deal with that narcissistic coworker. Mm-hmm. But can you give us a few quick tips on 
how to recover from being raised by that narcissistic mm. parent. Yeah. And I know we've kind of touched, we've kind of talked about different strategies, but if you can like lay it out for us, like maybe five tips that you would highly recommend mm. to recover from being raised by a narcissistic parent. Number one, realistic expectations. Okay. They've been like this your whole life. You've known this your whole life. You're seeing it as an adult. You can go back. You can look at those family pictures and say, oh, this was actually a miserable day. Realistic expectations. The way they've behaved for the first 30 years of your life, you can pretty much set a clock on the fact that they're going to keep behaving like this, right? It hasn't changed. So don't go in thinking that this is the day they're going to notice you. Okay. Number two, work towards radical acceptance so you can fully accept your parent where they're at because that's going to make it easier. If you decide to maintain a relationship, to do so in a way that's self-protective. And if you decide to go no contact with them, it's because you're very aware of the picture. Number three, minimize your engagement. Like figure out the things you can talk about. Listen, there's some things you can't do. They're third rails, they're triggering, they're evocative, and you're going to go down the same rabbit hole every time. Minimize that engagement. Make a list of topics you can talk about that won't get people worked up. Prepare ahead of time. You could talk about the weather. You could talk about, look at that. The neighbors changed their mailbox or people stealing the mail, whatever. I mean, it's all, it's all superficial. People say, well, that's not very fun. I want a deep relationship with my parents. That ship sailed. You have narcissistic parents. You're not going to have a deep relationship. So let it go. That's your radical acceptance. And number four, stop personalizing. Because I think that what ends up happening, especially when it's your parent, like, this is me. What is it about me? It's not about you. They're the ones saying the messed up stuff. They're the ones who aren't noticing. This is, you could put anyone in your chair and they would be doing something similar. You're like, no, 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 they don't do that to my brother. They don't do that to your brother because your brother is their strange golden child who still brings basketball trophies home to them. Let's talk when that stops. You know, so like understand who the players are, but stop personalizing this. You're just playing a little weird role in their puppet show and you can decide whenever you want to pull out of that puppet show. Okay. And then number five, either whether through therapy, coaching, whatever it takes, figure out what you want this to look like. You are an adult. Okay. Now it's time to take responsibility. When we're with our parents, we forever feel like we're five or six and it is painful. The reason I suggest therapy is once you realize you have a narcissistic parent, you're talking about a complex set of things about having to potentially work on trauma. You're definitely working on grief. You may be working on self-concept and you're definitely going to work on when you have a narcissistic parent, you start to even lose the plot on who am I because I've been living for them so long. I don't even know what I stand for. Therapy becomes the place you do that. But that those five things are at a minimum the things one would need to do to start separating those sticky ties, almost those codependent ties at times or trauma bonded ties with, with your narcissistic parental relationships. I am just blown away right now. And I know we're going to move on to our next segment, but I cannot wait to listen to this episode. Okay. And I'm the, I mean that with all seriousness. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So Yes, Dr. Ramani, you're so welcome. And so Dr. Ramani, because we recognize, appreciate, and celebrate the multifaceted woman, and we believe that it's okay to be classy and ratchet, and you can still be elegant and dance to strip club music, we invite you to the OU Clatchet segment. So do you take on the challenge, Dr. Ramani? I absolutely do. Oh, I love it. I like to hear this. Go ahead, Dom. (laughs) 
Okay, so question number one: What is the most spontaneous thing you've ever done? Mm-hmm. Most spontaneous thing I have ever done. Wow, I need a minute on that one. <laughs> I would say that th- there was a friend who once said, "Hey." You want to go on a trip, and I said, "Sure. How about Tibet?" And I think in three weeks we went to Tibet. Like that was about as spontaneous as it got. Like we had to get these visas, and it was this whole thing. And oh. she's an amazing travel. Like literally, I think we threw this thing together like in less than a month. She's like, "Want to go on a trip? Sure. Tibet. Yeah. Good. Bye." So we went. Whoa. It was a great, memorable trip of my life. And she's an amazing travel buddy. So yeah, that would be that. Mm-hmm. That sounds so amazing. I amazing. wish we could do that now, right? Yeah. One day we'll be able to do One that day. again. <laughs> and I can't, I can't Tibetan people are beautiful. It's beautiful, beautiful trip. Yeah. Oh, goodness. I love it. All right. Our second question for you. What is your biggest pet peeve? Mm, my <laughs> narcissism. <laughs> That's not a surprise. <laughs> okay, so I'm going with that, and I would, I, and I would say, actually, let's boil that down. My biggest pet peeve is entitlement. People who think mm-hmm. that they deserve special treatment, that the rules don't apply to them, that they're hypocrites. Like I, I don't like that. That makes sense to me. Okay, what is your biggest guilty pleasure? <laughs> Candy Crush. <laughs> yes. I know. I just, I just lost twenty <laughs> IQ points. I'm like, I am not kidding you. My days are so heavy. And the yes. things I hear are so heavy, and yes. I do. I do read. I, I, I try to read the books my daughter, the novels my daughter reads for school because it makes for wonderful mm-hmm. conversations. But then there's a point where we're reading this amazing novel right now called Swing Time by Zadie Smith. It's amazing, yes. but I, it's such a good book. But I got to tell you, there's a point at which I just turn on the good old Candy Crush because it's meaningless. I'm like, oh look, the purple candies yes. are lining up, and it is my little strange, sick, mindful moment because I'm not even in it to win it. I just like how it looks when all the things blow up, and it's and it yes. people look like, what are you doing? And I'm like, no shame. No shame at the Candy Crush. <laughs> Just candy crushing. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and Dr. Romney, what, this is a little, a little, it's kind of tied to the last question, but what do you do for fun? What do I do for fun? Not enough. I would say that for fun, I will, I'm, I never make that much time to watch Netflix. So when I can find it, I just, when I can find a good series, and this is even on Netflix, I just finished Homeland, which blew my mind, how it ended, thought it was magnificent. So when I can find a good Netflix show, I will say that's something I will do for fun, because I rarely, I'd say maybe once a week for an hour a week I watch TV, so it takes me a thousand years to watch a series. I do love to, you know, back in the day I did a lot more things for fun, I would I was a hiker. I was a major traveler. I love to travel, you know. So, but I'm I'm actually come up real short in that in that area. I'm not good at having fun when I'm with my partner. He's a lovely man and patient, and so sometimes fun is like literally the spontaneous conversation we have when we stop at the dining table and talk to each other. I have two amazing daughters, and sometimes our fun is like we'll play one of these silly games, like you pronounce words that are not the right words in some game and takes your picture, like. I don't get it. Or they'll show me TikTok and I'll be confused. Uh. Or make a TikTok and I'll be confused. <laughs> and so I think that it's like I try to capture the joy of the spontaneous moments of the yeah. people I love because there's for me they're so rare with how hard I've been working lately. And then beyond that, if I can find a good TV series, I'm on it. Reading because I love reading other people's you know beautiful words. And then you know of course Candy Crush. So we've always got that. Yes. 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 Okay, so 
we want to thank you so much. Thank you. I have really enjoyed this conversation. And I know that, you know, I appreciate how we were able to end with like the fun question because I, re- I do recognize that the work that you do is really heavy. Like you yeah. said, like you, when we're dealing with narcissism, there is so much trauma in that. Yes. And I, I just am so appreciative of you for doing the work because I know that not a lot of fellow psychologists, like I know that a, not a lot of us truly dive into this work. And so for you to take this on, I think I, I'm just so grateful. Well, that's so kind of you. You know, it, to me, I have to tell you, working with clients and unlocking this one piece of the north you know it's it's national mental health it's yeah national mental health month this month Mm -hmm. and i have found that unlocking this one piece of the puzzle for many people they'll say i've been spinning my wheels in therapy for six years and if this one thing had been explained to me in these simple terms i totally would have set myself free it's almost like watching somebody lose 50 pounds in front of you because they're like, mm. this wasn't me. I'm like, no, there's an explanation. They said, why didn't somebody tell me? I'm like, you know, you again, as a psychologist, you now know, because a lot of people don't get trained in this. As a graduate right. student, I didn't even get one whole course in personality disorders, not one. Wow. And everything I got was in supervision, you know, reading, doing research, but it was all very much having to get it as catch as catch can. I just think that the reluctance of the field to talk about these patterns is doing no one any favors. And I'm watching people get set free. I'm like, now, now that I know that this is a thing, I don't feel like I, I failed at everything. They're like, and they're not angry. They're like, now I get it. And they're able to, again, release these kinds of demons. And then again, they lighten up. I see people have you know, they, they seem less depressed. You see less apathy. You see less anxiety. I mean, it, it's a pretty, it can, I'm not saying this applies universally, but in numerous cases, this was the massive piece of the puzzle that once you had it, you saw the whole picture. This is just so incredible. And Dr. Ramana, we just, again, want to thank you for your time. Thank you. thank you for you being a light in the world and having these difficult conversations, doing this heavy work. And we just honor you. We celebrate you. And we're just so grateful. Thank you for joining us in her space. Hey lady, it's Dr. Dom here from the HerSpace podcast. Do you have a burning question you're dying to get feedback on? Do you want an unbiased perspective on a situation you're facing? If so, visit herspacepodcast.com and click Ask Dr. Dom under the Start Here option. Every Tuesday, I'll choose a few questions and answer them at random. Thanks for joining us today in HerSpace. Please note that our show may contain conversations about self-help, advice, self-empowerment, and mental health, but it is by no means meant to be a substitute for an ongoing formal relationship with a trained mental health provider. If you or someone you know is in need of mental health care, please visit the Therapy for Black Girls directory, Psychology Today, or contact your insurance provider. If you liked what you heard and want to keep the conversation going, connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at HerSpacePodcast, or check out our website at HerSpacePodcast.com. And before we meet again, repeat after me. There's something inside of me that's bigger than any obstacle. We'll see you next week, lady.